Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to find out the stories that brought them to this caring little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Brent Marsden. Now, if you know Brent Marsden like I know Brent Marsden, you'll know him as that caring, genuine, older gentleman you run into at the coffee shop from time to time and have really great conversations with. Well, today is no different. We're going to be having some great conversations with Brent, and he's going to go into some old school Pender stories. And he's going to talk about things like flying in on a float plane to Pender Island in the late 60s to take a look at some of the original Magic Lake estate lots that were for sale. He'll also go into talking about his background of boating and building boats. As well, Brent will discuss his role along with 26 other parties in helping to preserve Hope Bay as a commercial space and give some background as to how that all came together. All right, there's that and a lot more coming up. So get yourself a cup of tea or iced tea or a beverage or a beer and kick back and relax and get ready for some wonderful stories from Brent Marsden. Brent, welcome to the podcast. Wow, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. How was uh, how was your day today? Well, it was pretty busy. I had to pull a well pump by myself. My helper is up playing disc golf on Cortez Island. But other than that, and if he's listening to this anywhere, um, he can uh, feel guilty. Um, <laughs> but it was a good day. No, I had a good day. I came home tired and had to have a nap because I knew I was coming out tonight, you know, and as time goes by, you need to have a nap before you go out in the evening. Yeah, I wish I had a nap today myself, yeah. actually, but it's we're, we're recording at uh, 7 p.m. on a uh, hot yeah. summer day. A hot summer day. Yeah. yeah. A beautiful day. Beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to uh, lead right into the first question of our podcast, mm-hmm. and that, of course, is what brought you to Pender Island? Well, one day... A gentleman that lived next door to us where I grew up came to see my father and he said, uh, a very Scottish gentleman, he said, Jerry, you've got to come and find this place called Bender Island. And uh, my dad says, what are you talking about, Donald? And Donald said, well, I have bought myself a lot on Pender Island. My dad says, well, where's Pender Island? Oh, he says, it's halfway to Victoria. And my dad says, well, I'm... I'm not interested in that. He said, I'll, uh, why don't you take Brent? Oh, yeah, because Donald wanted a cabin built on his little lot on Pender Island. This was in 1969. 68, actually. Yeah, it was 1968. And so Donald and I got in his old, he had an old Vanguard car, a humpy thing, and we got onto the Queen of the Islands, out in Swasson, and came over to Pender Island, got off, drove who knows where, found our way into Magic Lake here, and uh, he showed me his lot and then explained to me how reasonable it was at the time. He'd paid about $1,800 for this lot. So I went home, and I thought, by the time we got home, and I thought, gee, that would be interesting, you know. I'm just out of high school. If I had a job, I could maybe buy myself a lot. It's all treed, beautiful. And so I talked to my friend Tom, who was uh, working up in the oil patch, making good money. He was making like $2.20 an hour up there. My earning power was about a buck an hour. And so we decided that we should both come over here and look for a piece of land. Then we found out that you could actually uh, get a free airplane ride if you were coming to look at property in Magic Lake. A float plane ride, you just went out to the airport walked up and said, I want to go look at land on Pender Island and get on this plane. And we arrived probably in the fall of 1968, flew into Browning Harbor. There was not much there. Um, there was a, seemed to be a restaurant. It was shut down for the season probably. But anyway, uh, there's a man met us, met the float plane. There's just the two of us on there. And uh, we got in this Jeep. We drove up very bumpy potholy gravel roads. It was like 
just back in, it was wilderness. And all the way up Canal Road and up Schooner Way, and none of it was paved. And all washboard. And uh, to the sales office, which was located where, uh, right at the corner, just opposite the kitty corner from where the fire hall is now, entrance to Magic Lake. And we walked in there, and there was this young fellow all dressed up in nice clothes, and he said, uh, you guys are just in time. And we said, what's the matter? He said, there's two lots left. And we said, oh, two lots. And he said, yeah, we got two lots left. And I mean, I don't know why we're looking at this map. There's 1,200 lots in this subdivision. That's in 1968. Yeah. And uh, the guy looked at us and he knew he had a couple of suckers. <laughs> and so we jumped in his Jeep and off we went. And we looked at some ugly lot somewhere <laughs> down in a ravine. And then he took us around and by uh, Buck Lake and then up the sewer easement to get up to Port Road and Port and Starboard and then up right up to the top of Port Road. And he said, look around. He says, all this can be yours. And we said, well, my goodness, look at the view. Yep. And I said, because I'd worked on a summer job on a survey crew, so I knew enough to ask, well, where's the actual property lines? Oh, he says, come on back down the road. So we went back down Port Road a ways. And we're still looking at the view. There's still a view. And we walk further down, further down. Finally, he says, there you go. So we looked out at the ocean. He says, no, 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 behind you. And it was down over the edge. Uh, and uh, so we thought, okay. And he says, you know, with a three-story building, you might get an ocean view. <laughs> so we uh, we bought the lot. I held on to my share. Uh, my friend needed sole title so he could buy himself a house some four years later. So I sold mine out, but... It wasn't bad, 1900 bucks, and, and uh, it cost me $35 a month for three years to pay that off, which wow. was a struggle, you know, and, you know, for, uh, at the time, it seemed like it was hard, we were hard-pressed to make those payments, but $190 down, and, but anyway, it, it, it got me here, and when I sold, we'd, we would come camping on the lot, and we had big dreams, we were going to build Playboy palaces and things like that. Joined by a common living play area, and uh, but it, that, that never took place. And when I finally sold my part of it, I uh, took the money and instead of paying for my schooling, which I should have done, I went off to uh, Europe with a friend, and we traveled around Europe for a while, spent all the money, and then I came back, and a, a guy offered me a job. In the meanwhile, I, I mean, I'd paid my way through school. My one year up at SFU was I was building a boat for a anthropology instructor I had. And uh, he was paying me $200 a month plus room and board if I'd build him a boat. It's a 45-foot boat. I'd never built a boat before. And I just agreed that I could build this boat. So I did that. We were building this boat hull, a ferro-cement boat. And the fellow that came to plaster had offered me a job. So when I came back from Europe, I ended up working for him, building boats. And I dropped out of school because uh, I couldn't afford it anymore. And, you know, the f fees were $225 a semester then. And, you know, it was hard-pressed to come up because I'd, I'd spent all my money in Europe. Anyway, um, once I was doing that, building boats with these guys, I was coming back and forth to Pender Island on weekends, some weekends, because one of the owners of this company had a sailboat in Otter Bay. So we'd come over to go sailing, but we'd always end up in the Pender Lodge or the Legion. And uh, it was either too windy or too sunny or too cold, or we would be too hungover or too something to ever go sailing. I think we had the boat out once. Over two or three years that took place until I finally was at a point where I was, I was building my own boat at the time. And uh, I decided that I would, in this shop where I was working, and I decided that once it was launched, I was going to take part in a, a program up north, reacquainting First Nations, you know, not how naive I was, reacquainting First Nations people with their traditional lands. And it was a program that was being run out of Alberta somewhere. And these people were spending money trying to reintroduce people to places like Village Island and up all these little communities that have been were being abandoned by First Nations. So there I was, charging up there in my boat, and I realized that. And that was in 1977, when I probably 
just off of Quadra Island, I suddenly went, oh my God, it's, it's August and it rains up here. And I don't have the hatches on my boat yet. <laughs> just a 50-foot sailboat with no rigging and no, you know, no hatches on it yet. So I turned around. I thought, what am I going to do? I got this boat. I can't afford to keep it in Vancouver. I can't afford to keep it anywhere. So I tried Galliano Island. I came all the way back down. I thought, okay, Galliano Island. They didn't want me in uh, Montague Harbor. And so I thought, well, I'll go see Bob at Otter Bay. I went into Otter Bay, and Bob says, it's too big for my docks. But why don't you go around to Browning Harbor and check with the Henshaws? They just bought that place down there. They got lots of docks, and, you know, maybe you can keep it there. So I ended up traveling around to Browning Harbor, I had my friend, not wife Judy, but an old friend Judy, and another friend Paul on board, and Paul had a little motorcycle. So we offloaded the motorcycle and uh, zoomed to check it out before I took the boat around, actually. And I went into the parking lot, and somebody had told me I have to talk to Gordy Henshaw, actually. And so I went up, and I was asking around Gordy. I asked this woman, I said, excuse me, can you tell me where Gordy Henshaw is? Oh, yeah, he's over there talking to that other guy. So I waited, and suddenly Gordy was free, so I went over to Gordy, and I said, gee, Gordy, I said, uh, would it be possible to moor my boat here in your marina? Oh, I don't know. You'll have to talk to Leela. And I said, oh, okay, uh, where's Leela? And he said, well, uh, just over there. That was the woman I was just talking to. So I went back to Leela, and I says, Leela, I said, Gordy says I have to talk to you. Oh, no, you'll have to talk to Gary then. <laughs> and I said, oh, where's Gary? <laughs> well, he's over there talking to Gordy. I said, gee. We're all standing with about 20 or 30 feet of each other. I said, hold it a minute. I said, can I talk to you people for a second? <laughs> I mean, I went back and forth. And uh, yeah, it was pretty funny, actually, when I think about it. Um, and so Gary said, well, would you be willing to work off your marriage? I said, sure, I'll do whatever it takes. And he said, how big is your boat? And I said, well, it's 50 feet. And I said, oh, boy, they said, oh, 50 feet. Oh, I'm going to put you this and this. They mumbled a lot. And this is in August in the middle of, you know, boating season. And they just opened the pub. The pub had been open for about a week, you know, when I got there. And so uh, uh, it was a 40-seat pub, half the size it is now. And so they were feeling those pains. Gary's running the pub. Leela had been looking after the property for a couple of years for her parents after they'd bought it and were building the pub and everything. And uh, no Lou in sight yet. Yeah, that comes later. Anyway, I negotiated a deal and I went back on the motorcycle, got my boat back and walked into the pub. Got my boat into the marina and then uh, I walked in with uh, my friend Judy and my friend Paul and pretty well every seat was taken, but there was one table that had a couple of seats at it and it was a lot of, you know, I felt quite comfortable because I had fairly long hair and a beard and there's a lot of long-haired people, um, both men and women, and a lot of beards and everything. It was a lot more earthy, you know, sure. back then. And uh, I walked in, and we looked around, and this young fellow looks over. He says, well, don't just stand there. Come and sit down. So we went over and sat down. His name's Roy. Rapid Roy. And my friends call me Rapid, he says. So, so we sat down and uh, my friend Judy says, you know, Brent, she says, I think you're going to love this place because <laughs> I had my back to this guy and she was looking at the back of the shirt and it said on it said, Rob the Throb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it was Rob's story. Anyway, so we met all these characters, right? The very first minute of walking in that bar. And uh, so my friends, Paul and Judy, had decided that, yeah, I was going to fit in just perfect around this place. So I had my boat there. Everything seemed fine. And so I'm wandering around wondering what work I can do to earn my keep. Ah, don't worry about it. Later. Yeah, we'll just do this later, later, later. And everything was later. And uh, I said, well, you know, give me something to do. You want me to paint anything? You want me to fix something? Or, you know, I can do this. Ah, uh, no, no, no worry. Have a hamburger, have a coffee, have a... So the bar became my home. I mean, I was on my boat, but the phone number at the bar was my phone number. I mean, people would phone, my parents would phone. They'd phone the bar and I'd be in the bar. I'd probably end up spending too much time in the bar. 
I did leave here and go back to the mainland to do a couple of jobs, but I would just go for a little period of time and then come back. I, either, sometimes I'd leave my boat here and go back and stay with a friend or something. But then it was that long weekend in 1978 that I uh, made a long weekend. I said, that's it. I'm not, I didn't go back to the city. Okay. All right. <clears throat> well, I'm just going to jump in here real yeah. quick because like, you, that's kind of an amazing story what you're talking about, about these uh, classic Pender names. For people who have been on the island for any length of time, they'll probably recognize uh, a few of the names, if not all that it's, uh, you mentioned there. Rob's story and the Henshaws. And uh, it's funny when you say Lou comes next because, uh, yeah, hopefully we get to, I get to interview her at some point. But okay, so you uh, you, you have that history with browning which is pretty common for a lot of people and that you say like you basically lived at the bar and so so when came the time where you actually became a permanent resident of the island let's say and you really started to make a home for yourself here well what happened was because i was having to rig the boat and work on the boat and there was a lot of interest in what i was doing and the fact that i could do so i ended up making an arrangement with Earl Hastings. I used to have cows and had the tank farm and sold fuel and supplied the island with fuel at that time. I made an arrangement with him to, we built a shop up at his place, up by the airstrip, where I could pursue my boat building because I had a few contracts to do and, you know, be for 40-foot boats. So it paid pretty well. And it made it some employment for a few people. But anyway, working with Earl... Again, the arrangement was, well, you just help me when I need some help. Nobody wanted cash. And so that was fine. I would help him out. I helped him haying. Or I used to run the the marine ways, pulling boats up. We had a railway in the very deep end of, by the marina there. So we'd pull boats out and we'd do repairs on them. And, you know, he was an older guy. And so he relied on my help sometime. And when it also came time to rigging the boat, I would... Uh, made a good contact with a, an old fellow, Lyle Brackett, old pioneer family. And he would come and show me how to rig or, or do rigging and do splicing and things he'd learned as a, working as a logger and a fisherman. And so I didn't have permanent roots, but I moved out of the marina and I moved over and was keeping my boat over by the brown, uh, by the government dock. And there was a few times when I, I'd move into a cabin or a house for a little while, depending on who my friend was. But for the most part, I I stayed on the boat. And it wasn't until 1985 when I um, been down to Costa Rica in 1982. And I went on a trip in 1985 and I met Judy. And when she came back to Pender Island with me, with the plan of taking the boat and sailing to Costa Rica with a number of people on board, because all through that time I was chartering the boat and you know my life was revolving around that a lot i was doing plumbing contracting for people uh but the contractors would have to come walking down the dock to find me because i didn't have a telephone or anything i'd go do a job get paid stuff the money under my bunk and you know i was living a pretty nomadic kind of life i thought perfect life it was like being retired before you end up working for a living but in 1985 When Judy came back and we decided we were going to take this trip and sail south, we've got a crew on board and everything, and we got, everything was set up to do that, And uh, but we had to abort the trip after two or three weeks of all sorts of hassles with U.S. customs and immigration and illness and, you know, stuff like that. So we came back and then uh, Judy and I said, well, okay, when we get an opportunity, we'll have to find a piece of land. And, you know, so we rented a house for a period of time. And as my plan, my idea was to just get a piece of land and build a house or, or do something like that. But we, we were able to, Earl Hastings turned around and said, well, here, you can rent my old farmhouse, 100 bucks a month. Holy smokes, you know, that's a pretty good deal. So we did that and it enabled us to accrue a little bit of capital and because at the time I was working and I was actually then contracting houses, building houses. And so we, in the midst of that, um, by about 1993, we came back. We had bought a piece of land in Costa Rica. The arrangement she had with me or the, the deal we made was, she said, I'll come to Canada as long as we return to Costa Rica every year. 
Wow. Because her father lived down there. And, uh, you know, she had contact. She'd been living there for five years and she'd been working as a teacher down there. And so that wasn't a hard deal to make. And so you have to work hard to be able to pull that off. But we did it. And then we bought our own piece of land. I ended up building a house down there for the Devrils. I contracted and built a house for the Monroes, you know, another few years later. And as a result of that, I was able to buy my own land and build a house down there for ourselves in Costa Rica. Okay. So we we had that and we were at a point and it was in 1992 or 93. The area where we were built we built our house was involved in a huge squat where a bunch of people moved in and started cutting down the trees and just squatted on somebody's land. And so all this took place and it was okay. It had been going on for a couple of years. Uh the government didn't move on it. They should have Right away, various authorities were saying, no, you've got to remove all these people and it's a land grab and everything. And people were trying to justify it because uh, they figured a foreigner owned the land. And and so the time came when the Minister of Justice or whatever his title is had gone on vacation. So the Deputy Minister of Justice mobilized the police to remove all these people off this land. And they had a certain amount of time to leave. And when that happened, uh, that's the, probably the one of the first times I felt racism and, and felt in a minority position. And uh, suddenly all these people who've been very friendly turned ugly. And so it wasn't a very nice time for a period of time. And uh, people that had actually worked for me were now suddenly yelling at, you know, calling various terms and and it, it was, uh, I was in the process of building a house for Don and Wendy Monroe. And the guys working for me, uh, their wives would come down the road and tell us when it was safe to come down to the house site. And because where we were doing this, uh, this huge squad had taken place all across the road from where we were. We had our own properties. So anyway, the police came and uh, marched everybody out, 300 rural guard or the Guardia Rural, they came and marched everybody out, and so everything went quiet. And then suddenly, all these folks that have been slandering us and were wanting to sell us their personal possessions and everything else, suddenly they were all, we were all good people again. And uh, it was a funny time. So when we left that year, come back to Canada, I said to Judy, I said, that's it. We can't make a home there, because that was our plan. So we came back and we decided we'd we'd find something here. So that was 1993. When we, and then we were sitting one morning having coffee. And I said, you know, I remember when Gerd Berger had his property for sale. And I said, do you remember that? And she says, well, kind of. But so I phoned Gerd and he says, oh, you won't believe this. But we were sitting around this morning just talking about the fact we're going to put it up for sale again. He says, come on up, have a coffee and let's talk about it. So we went up to him. Gerd Berger's place up on uh, Scarf Road. We sat around. He says, well, he says, I'll sell it to you. But he said, uh, only if I can finance it. I said, oh, perfect, you know. And uh, how much do you want? We want a lot of money for it. And he said, but I'll finance it. And I said, how much down payment? He says, as little as possible. Because the interest was like 9 or 10%. Okay. And so I, we agreed. And at the, at the time, I had already in partnership with my friend Steve Wright. We own the 10 acres where the Anglican Church sits. But it wasn't going to be that desirable to build on or, you know, it wasn't the plan. The plan was to do other things with it. And so when I negotiated on this one with Gerd Berger, suddenly we had 20 acres of land and making two payments. <laughs> and But it was okay. You know, we pulled it off and uh, right away started scrounging for materials to start building okay yeah. so that's a long period of time to go from first your first experience with flying in on a float plane and checking out magic lake estates and dealing with a shyster salesman Why? shiny shoes shiny yeah. shoes yeah okay he was he was a good salesman a good salesman okay all right so we only got two lots left but uh yeah and so to go from that period of time Sorry, that was the late 60s? That was the 60s. Yeah, yeah. The late 60s. To 94. And then having like an on and off, I guess, involvement with uh, Pender Island before it finally... Oh, yeah. Well, I was 
you know, renting and staying on my boat. I mean, I had my own home on the boat, which is fine. Right. But which it comes back to, and I think I mentioned something about this before when living on my boat, it was frowned upon in a lot of circles and it still, still is. There's still people that think that people are taking advantage of something and maybe so in some cases. But I know that the island's trust of the day in, say, in 1978, um, yeah, 79, were quite concerned about people living on boats. And their reasoning was because all the redevelopment taking place in False Creek in Vancouver was going to displace all these float houses and houseboats and sailboats and fish boats. There was a lot of people living on board them in, in False Creek. And they're all going to be evicted. And so they were concerned they would all flood into the Gulf Islands. So they were trying to create bylaws that would restrict living on board boats within a thousand feet of the shores of the Gulf Islands. Wow. And so I went to this one meeting, this one Islands Trust meeting, and I stood up and says, well, you know, I'm confused here because these waters are actually controlled by the National Harbors Board. And the trustee said, well, Brent, this is not a concern to you because you work. So what? And he said, you work. He said, we're worried about people who just come here and just squat here on their boats. But he said, you work. And I said, oh. <laughs> so in the late 70s, Islands Trust was worried about people squatting on their boats and, well, they, and harbors. And yeah, they were concerned that there'd be, they could picture rafts of people living on boats anything could happen anything, anything could happen who knows who knows who these yeah, people they could, could move an old tanker in there and live on it you know yeah well you know we were yeah we, we talked about this uh, last night on the phone which is a little pre-interview we did and you told me about a little bit of the history of false creek and i that actually really kind of amazed me because you told me a bit about uh just how occupied the uh, the waters were with with people mm -hmm. who are working down there and yeah how it was quite romantic all up and down the coast, like when I was an anthropology student, we actually went on anthropology field trips to check into squatters, communes, loggers, all the way up through Desolation Sound and up the coast. There was people living in float houses and boom of logs together with a shack on it or maybe on the shore, squatting on forestry land or squatting on, you know, some of those people. They just moved their abodes down into Vancouver, into False Creek, or maybe even in Coal Harbor, you know. When Vancouver was just, as I see it anyway, when it was just cutting trees down and fishing and some manufacturing, but there were big sawmills and everything all around False Creek was all industrial and lots of people, cheap accommodation. It's, yeah, it would actually, it might be the answer for some of the homeless pro the problem right now is just let people live on boats in False Creek. It seems like that would make sense. Well, they, the big concern is with... Uh, sewage and waste and and sometimes people are you know they're throwing all their crap overboard so you got to come to deal with that somehow absolutely but, well actually yeah just to dial this back because uh it seems like boating is a is a big part of your life because you mentioned earlier in the interview that you were asked to build a boat and you had never done that before did you say that was a professor that asked you? Yeah, he was an anthropology professor I had. Okay, so how did how did that work out? Did you have a background in carpentry or? Mm, no, not necessarily. Well, I, I did actually. It's funny you ask that because I was once asked to, um, when the bank was asking, when we were building Hope Bay store, and I was going to be in charge of that construction. And so, of course, you're borrowing money from the bank. There was, I don't know if you know that story, but there was. 27 of us bought the property and we're going to redevelop Hope Bay after it had burnt down. And uh, I was in charge of the construction. And so they wanted to know if I had a, a resume or, a, you know, my history of construction so that I, they felt confident loaning us a bunch of money. I'd never filled out, made out a resume or anything before. So I, I started, I said, well, I guess it started when I was four years old. I would stand at the other end of a table saw when my father would be feeding boards to, and I'd have to balance them on my head. <laughs> no back, way. Come on. Yeah, that's really? True, and wow. back up and not move. What? I'd have to keep perfectly still and back up absolutely still so he could be feeding this board through. Holy smokes. I wasn't allowed to touch the saw, but, you know, I, I think the guy saw the humor in that. 
that's totally true. It just, and it went on from there. So my, my dad would say, you know, this house is not big enough. I was one of six kids. We're going to add on to the house. It wouldn't be like he'd sit down and chat it over with my mother or anything like that. He'd just say, you know, we need to add on to this house. Oh, okay. Let's add. Where are we going to do it? Well, we're going to add a kitchen on. Okay. Let's add a kitchen on. Now we'd start and think about getting a permit later if some things didn't get permitted. And uh, so life was like, one day we were sitting out, I was 16 and we were sitting around and he said, dad, we need a swimming pool. And so he says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I need a swimming pool. Let's have a swimming pool. Oh, and you try and build a swimming pool in Richmond. There was only, there was two swimming pools in Richmond at that time. Uh, One was the community pool. Oh, three. One was a prefabricated steel and vinyl thing that some guy built above ground because Richmond, of course, is at sea level. Mm -hmm. And so you dig a hole, you got water. So you put anything in the hole in the water and it floats. So you got to be really careful. And another one was out by number six road. A man named Fred Webb owned that place. Nice. I went to school with his son. And uh, so we decided we're going to build a swimming pool. So my dad said, well, we're going to have to get a permit. So drop some plans. So I drew up some plans for a swimming pool, what I thought would be appropriate. I didn't have no idea about how much rebar to put in it or anything else. But I drew up these plans. I took them into the municipal hall. Well, they had never issued a permit for a swimming pool before. They had no idea what to do. So they just said, okay. So we went home. We started digging. And we dug and dug by hand. We started digging. And we dug massive great hole. We were dumping. We had legions of neighborhood kids all there with wheelbarrows and this whole thing. And uh, we got it to a certain depth and always fighting water. We had a permanent pump going, keeping water out. Wow. And my mother's making batches of Kool-Aid and cookies and everything and feeding all the neighborhood kids on. I had friends from school because I was about 16 then. And, and so, you know, healthy young guys. They're wheeling wheelbarrows and the neighbor's yard got Donald Mack, the guy I told you about, who I eventually the following year went off with him to look at a property on Pender Island. Yeah. Uh, we filled his yard up with dirt and filled up the, na- I mean, there was dirt everywhere all over the neighborhood. Then the sides caved in. And so my dad had to break down and hire an excavator. And this guy came, dug the hole with his excavator. It was 17 bucks an hour for an excavator. And it took him two hours. <laughs> <laughs> done. <laughs> done. And except the sides caved in again. So he had to come and do it Not again. done. So... I, we built this pool and it was, you know, why wouldn't you be able to just build something? So when somebody said, we well, you build a boat, sure, I can build a boat. Okay. Let me look at how you build a boat and I can, you know, and just start by building it. So did, did your dad teach you or did he just watch? I just watched. You just watched. Yeah. And, and then he would, he was the kind of guy that would say, well, you guys want to go camping and the, the old car we had, the old Ford station wagon. The engine was leaking oil really bad, and, and I was 15 then, and he says, you want to go camping? He says, we got to fix that oil leak. So he says, take the engine out of the car. And he, he worked shift work, so he would come home at 8 o'clock in the morning and sleep all day, or half the day. And when he'd come home at 8 o'clock, he'd say, okay, do this, 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 and then he'd go to bed. And that my job, and I, so I, in five or six days, we had this rebuilt this engine. <laughs> So did, your dad just had these expectations and you just had to figure out how to get things done? Is that yeah. basically it? Yeah. You, know, you read and you study the manual and you just do it. Yeah. Wow. And that, that was true of most things. There's no formal training or anything. It just, uh, I was just comfortable thinking, oh, I can see that. You know, you study something and then, you know. Well, there's so many different directions I can go here. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm bemoaning the fact that we only have an hour here, but I want to touch on Hope Bay because you yeah. said, uh, you asked me if I knew the story of that, and I don't know the story of Hope Bay burning down and being rebuilt, but I think that'd be a fascinating story for people to hear. So uh, take it away. Well, there was a fire, and the old, the original store built in ni- about 1905, and almost in its that form it slightly changed i guess over the years but it basically was the same structure and that burnt down wooden structure you know a real loss to the island i think because as you know i mean hope bay and port washington were the ports of entry for people coming and going 
And so there were people places, and it's where my original mailbox was. I was post office box 17. You had your own little slot in the wall. That the postmaster was back there uh, at the back of the store, right where Red Tree Gallery was now. That's about where the post office was. You know, we, we all felt the loss. The, the owner of the store at that time, a man named Case, dealing with the insurance company and everything, he decided he was going to rebuild. So when it came time, he hired me to oversee the building of the, the, the Hope Bay store. And I said, okay, that's fine. But the insurance company didn't want to... I think he was paid out. I forget how much money he was paid out. It wasn't enough to do the whole job, I'm sure. But anyway, he was given half of his money, and then he immediately gave that money to his wife, ex-wife, as a settlement. So then suddenly we're left with not enough money to build this building. We continued on working, and he went on. He said he'd get some money from family. So anyway, all this stuff happened. In the end, he just vanished and left a few of us holding some with debts or, you know, outstanding debts. So a few years went by and it sat there as a partially built, just a plywood, partially plywood, some framing, all the concrete work was done underneath, but the framing was started and then it just sat there. So it became a court-ordered sale to recover, you know, whatever it was. He just reneged on everything. So it was a forced sale. And we were down there and Peter Binner and Chris Jensen and others had been really concerned as much as anybody, but they were in the forefront of being concerned, both because they'd had businesses there in the past, Peter with his goldsmith shop, and Chris Jensen had had uh, her own uh, bookshop there. Various things had gone on in the Hope Bay store from when it would have been a grocery store and gas station to when over the years that I've been here. But anyway... Everybody was sad that it was not there and it seemed to be dead in the water. And then two gentlemen came along and they were going to buy this derelict. And they think, figured they had the inn on. They actually sat there, stood there talking to us one day out looking at this partially built thing. And they said, um, I said, oh yeah, when we get this, we're going to just turn into a private residence. So we said, oh, okay. So we went around, we decided that the amount, the place was valued at, they wanted Somebody, I guess the court, they wanted to get $215,000 or something like that. That's what the value was put on it. And so we knew that number. And it, because it was a closed bid type of thing to a judge, I think these fellows felt they could make some lowball offer. So we discussed it and we said, well, you know, if we get enough people together and each person puts in some money and we could buy this building and then let's keep it as commercial on the waterfront. It didn't take us very long. We suddenly had 27 people that were willing to put up $10,000 each. So suddenly we had $270,000 in the bank and a group when we, we give it, a, I think we give it a informally called it Hope Bay Rising or something at that time. But we were organized and we had created a board of directors of which I was on that one as well. And then with the plan of approaching the judge and or going to the court hearing and, and making an offer. And so we decided rather than, you know, some people said, oh, well, we just offer 180,000. We'd probably be able to say, no, they want 210 or 215, whatever it was. We just said, let's offer that plus. Let's not mess around. We don't want to miss a chance. Okay. So the judge, um, and I wasn't at that hearing, but apparently they, they and this, I may be a little off on this, but they took the bid from the other party, and they took our bid, and they turned to the other party and they said, "Well, your bid is lower. You got a chance to make a higher bid." So those folks raised their bid, somewhat five grand. I don't know what it was, and the judge says no, and awarded it to us as a group, and just because they didn't they didn't go anywhere near high enough to get this the building. So we got it, and then we decided, okay, well, we've got all this money in the bank now. We, we, we'd we made an arrangement with some of the people who'd been owed money by case to make sure they got paid off, and so everybody was happy, and we had to procure another section of the property from case because he still had title on uh, an adjoining piece where all the cars park along there. We had to go to Hornby Island to find him. And uh, he was selling or harvesting kelp up there at that time. 
we found him and made an arrangement that he would be absolved of his debts if he signed over the property and with a $2,000 bonus or something, you know, it's some kind of arrangement like that. So there we were, we had 27 of us and we owned this property. Okay. So what year was this in? That was in 2003. Okay. And I'm kind of amazed actually that 27 people would put up $10,000 each for it to remain a commercial space. What was the incentive by all these people? Like what was the drive? Romance. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. They just wanted to see it return to being a, a commercial entity on the water, you know, public space, people space. Yeah. And so we started, I mean, we started cleaning it up and we had to get engineers report and everything. We, I mean, we must have spent about seventy or $80,000 on the engineering and permits and everything on that building. Wow. To get it back where it was. And, and there was opposition to it from certain forces, dark forces. Dark forces. Well, they didn't want to see a commercial entity going on there. They thought all oh, that commercial should be in one spot. Hmm. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well, that's really interesting because it was funny when you came over tonight, my wife was just taken off to go to Hope exactly. Bay. Exactly. And uh, what's going on there tonight is that gather a new store by Matt and Cher that yeah. just opened it up there. Uh, there's looks beautiful. Yeah. And there's going to be some live music outside and, and uh, talk to Cher about this the other day and she wants to get the energy up and very good. Yeah. So good. It, uh, when I looked at it, what I saw there was, uh, I walked up and I thought, Oh my goodness. Cause it looked like the entrance to the old general store that used to be there prior to the eighties. Wow. For 75 years. That's what it reminded me of, just that look. I mean, we had, when we rebuilt that building, and it's it's a copy of modernized with modern conveniences in it, but it, it's a copy of what the original building, the facade, everything is pretty close. It's similar. But there's an old family, the Rossmiths, who came here in the 50s. Uh, and when George Rossmith was a little boy, he remembers coming off the boat at Hope Bay Dock, because that's where everybody came in at that time. There was no Otter Bay or anything like that. Not the ferry terminal, for sure. And he remembers seeing that store, and there's a man waiting for him in a horse-drawn wagon to load him and his sister and brother and mom and dad and take them, because they just bought the farm in the valley, which is now Valley Home Farm, which used to be the Rossmith Farm. Prior to that, it was the Menzies Farm. And Mr. Menzies had come to pick them up because he'd sold it to Ashton Rossmith, which is George Rossmith's father. And George was a young boy, and he remembers seeing that store. And so then George, as an older person, he's now, he's now gone. When he came down to see what we were doing down there, he just burst into tears. He couldn't believe it. I mean, this grown, big, tough, grown man, and he just melted into a pile of tears. Wow. Because he said, it's just, he says, you guys have brought it all back. And um, some wouldn't say so, but certain embellishments went on, a little bigger and a little, but it does occupy the footprint. In fact, the columns that are holding up the front where the restaurant is, they had to be formed around the original concrete columns that were holding up the old warehouse that sat there. Wow. So we formed those those big round ones and, and it was all done in November, so the, they got wet and they soggy and we had to, we we're trying to pour before the tide came in. Oh, geez, it was a mess. Anyway, um, so that, and if you go into the basement, the original columns are still there. Mm. The original concrete is there. That's super cool. That's cool to hear a story about Menzies Farm changing hands to the Rossmith Farm, which... Yeah, and now it's Valley Home Farm, so. Yeah, and uh, horse-drawn carriage waiting to uh, take them to the farm. There, there's some romance right there. That's yeah. uh, fantastic. We are creeping up on nearing the end of our time. Not quite, but I haven't got to the second traditional question yet, which is a very important one because there's been too many awesome stories. But uh, who's helped you on Pendra Island along the way? Who do you want to highlight here? Interesting, that question. Um over the years, I, I would have to say that a lot of it was made possible by people like Gary Henshaw and the Henshaws, Earl Hastings and his son, John, dear, you know, dear people. Earl's belief was that uh, there's no reason for anybody to go homeless or hungry as long as you're willing to work. 
And his other thing he would say is never go any any direction empty-handed. Always take something. If you're going upstairs, take something that needs to go upstairs. If you're coming downstairs, bring something that don't go empty-handed. <laughs> and then uh, Lyle Brackett, another old-timer, whom, uh, you know, he'd yell across the bay and I'd be on my boat. Yeah, and he's, come on, he's, the coffee pot's on. Because people, they just yell at you. didn't have cell phones. You know, he'd yell across the bay. Yeah, I mean, it was cute because Bob and Helen Allison, Helen still is on the farm, but Bob Allison, he's now gone. But he he would come down, he says, he'd say things like, uh, coffee time is at 10 o'clock sharp. 10 o'clock and there's cake. <laughs> and so she, she could, knew that you could wander up there. I mean, people were, were like that. But I, I would say those people were really instrumental in making it possible for me to be here. Well, tell me why. Well, Gary, just because he, you know, is a friend and he said, you know, he, he said, okay, let's, you know, I had my moorage. I could work with them and around them and let me make my masts up on the back of Browning where the sewage treatment plant is. Now that's where I carved the mast for my boat and just made things happen because he had, they had trucks and machinery and they had all that sort of stuff that I needed and I didn't have. And then Earl Hastings, just because he let me have the space to do the work that I, I was able to do, just for helping him out on his sawmill a few bit, you know, a little bit or something like that. Yeah, so in the early days, they made it really easy for me to fit in, and only because I was able able and willing to participate in their their lives as well. So Okay. I guess what I'm hearing from you is that you're saying that these people uh, helped to welcome you into the community. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. And, you know, as they would do anybody that was, um, I think, I believe that was, you know, I and I found it quite fascinating because they, I mean, all those people knew each other and they all got along pretty well. And there was different things going on. Gary's trying to run a restaurant and a pub and a, a business. Plus, then he, he did get into the uh, excavating and sewage business that had been his forte, but he was also a rest, or, you know, he had started the pub and he and his wife Lynn got that thing going. And then Earl Hastings had been a machinist. So I learned a lot about that. You know, when you're working on boats and that, you got to know how to work with machinery and make things. And so we would be repairing boats and stuff like that. And he gave me access to the Marine Railway. So I, and his shop and his tools and everything, you know, so that made it possible. So I didn't really have to have a huge outlay for, to make my own kind of workshop initially, you know? Okay. Which I have now, but it's all full of junk. So as, as a good workshop should be. Yeah. It's full of junk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, they, they made that those early days really possible. They really did. Yeah. Right on. You actually mentioned earlier in the interview, I wrote this down because I thought it was interesting. You said nobody wanted cash. No, they, I mean, those guys, they didn't, they just traded off labor or if you'll do this you know come on and have dinner or hamburger or you know the pub was always eating those browning burgers and that was because we'd be down rebuilding the dock or repairing the dock or something and you know you'd spend four or five hours doing that in a day and you got a lunch out of it but you also knew you got your moorage if you started figuring it out at a certain hourly rate suddenly you've got moorage you know so you know, it's interesting listening to you telling these stories. Um, I, I don't know if I'm romanticizing what it is you're saying, but it sounded as if these these times in the uh, 70s, 80s were, I don't know, it sounded there was more connectivity. How would you say that that time differs from what Pender is like now? I would say it's, I don't want to be hard on anybody, but there was probably less culture. I think now it's actually a wonderful time to be here because of the music and the arts and all that stuff that's going on. I really think so. I I just think that then it was there, but there's more young people and they're really industrious young people. We're beholden to do is whatever we can to hang on to them and make it possible so they can make a life here because I see young families and I didn't see that so much. There was young people in their 20s and 30s maybe but there wasn't, it wasn't like there was a lot, there was families here, but not to the degree there is now, 
I mean, it's just because the population has grown too. Well, yeah, but even 10 years ago, when I first got introduced to the island, there were nowhere near the amount of young families that there are now. I know. It's really been a dynamic shift in the last five, six years, it, I'd say. It's incredible. For a long time, there's been a choir or a choral society for years, but they might have had 15 or 20 people in it. Now there's 80. Yeah. And there's a youth, there's a children's choir, which is part of, there's 40, there was 40 children in the children's choir. So those things like that, you kind of go, oh my goodness, this is, I find that it just makes a, an older person feel good inside, you know, I think, because there wasn't that kind of, there was, you know, we had some really good times and there was some pretty wild dances and wild parties. And, you know, in those days, you could, when the gymnasium had just been built and you could smoke in the gymnasium and you'd butt your cigarettes on the floor. I mean, that was how casual things were. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm not that that's a measure of anything, but times have changed and they, uh, for the better, actually. Yeah. And so at those dances, and they're always fun dances and there's teenage children at the same time. And a lot of them actually didn't go over to Salt Spring to school. They went to Parklands, the older children. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and then suddenly, the I guess the municipality of Sydney or Saanich figured out that, geez, these people aren't even under our, our paying taxes. <laughs> paying taxes to the Gulf Islands. Yeah. Take a boat over to Salt Spring. Let them take care yeah. of you. These are these are very good times, actually. That's so cool. That's so cool of you to say. I think that's great. And well, and I would I would have to say too, Chris. It's people like you and Geneva that show up and make this your home that that make it even better. I mean, you know, they make that they, they add to that whole thing we've got going on there. This this cultural thing. So cool. Thank yeah, you. No, that's true. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I've found through my own experience of being on the island that I joined the Solstice Theater, was asked to do plays mm -hmm. when we first came to the island. And and it was so amazing because if I had lived in the city, there's no way that would have ever happened. And I was in the choir this past winter. I actually remember seeing you in the audience during one of the performances and... Uh, mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it was it was such a, a treat to get to do that, and it's amazing to get to sing alongside of your neighbors, basically, and yeah. then look into the audience and get to know a, a third, you know, the half of the people in the audience, and uh, it was such such a treat. And it's like I think that's such a beautiful thing about being in this community in particular is um, those experiences. You know, you, you have the ability to do some things here that you wouldn't be able to do in a bigger community. No, that's very true. One more question for you here. Might not be the last one, but um, Papa Pender. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know where that came from. You don't, you don't know where that came from? Okay. Well, let's try. Where, where did that come from? Well, I, the first time I heard it was, was it Angie or Sarah and Steve? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that was about. I think that uh, I have a, a policy that, I, I mean, I don't mind helping people. And if people need help, I'll help them. First on my list is young people with children and or old folks. And so that, that's just how I function. And, you know, I'm really sad if it's, I'm sorry to say, if you have a, a million dollar home and, and, and you're, washers leaking on your tap that woman over there with three-year-old child that is struggling to do something is is going to end up first on the list <laughs> that's just the way it is yeah, so yeah okay so papa pender basically came from i think i that's the first time i heard you know i could it was i'm sure it was steve or sarah or somebody says oh you're papa pender wait steve steve who steve steve and sarah works at the ferry terminal steve Oh, Steve Wynn and Steve. Sarah yeah. Connolly. Okay. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Just, um, so wait, so you think that originated with Steve Wynn and Sarah Connolly? I think so. Okay. Either right. that or Angie, uh, Sarah's sister. Ange. Ange Connolly. Yeah. Ange Connolly. Okay. All right. Because I've, I've heard that uh, repeated numerous times yeah. over the years, uh, Papa Pender. That's, uh, well, sometimes, yeah, Jamie McLean. Well, I've heard her say it too, you know. But these are all, you know, more youthful friends. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're, we are nearing pretty much the end of our time here. But uh, thanks for coming in, seriously, because mm -hmm. uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to on the island. I always enjoy talking to you, and I'm really appreciative that uh, you chose to come in and, uh, and well, speak with me. Yeah, I don't know where we got to tonight, but we can... <laughs>
We'll find out when, when yeah. I listen back to the recording yeah. and everybody hears it, we'll find out. But yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to leave the last word to you here. Is there anything that uh, you want to touch on that uh, you hadn't touched on yet? Um, I think all I could say was, I mean, to my fellow Penderites out there, it's been a, it's been a wonderful ride. I can't imagine being somewhere else. And I've traveled a lot. You know, you're always going someplace wondering, well, can I be here or can I be here? How would I fit in here? And I find, as we were talking earlier about New Zealand and something, I mean, I could live there. That's fine. And it's very beautiful in places. But no, when I get up every morning, I just say, well, I'm really grateful. I'm, I am where I am. And, and so it's worth fighting for. It's worth being angry about the increase of shipping that's going to come our way with oil tankers. And it's worth... You know, if we don't stand up and say something or check the box when they're asking our opinion on those things, people will just walk all over us and one day we'll wake up and we won't be able to go on the beach anymore. Or we won't be able to, you know, you know Sarah and Steve's children won't get to see a whale or, or they, you know, those, we're really on the edge of losing a lot of valuable stuff. Yeah, I have concern about that. So... It makes me very grateful for the time I live in and the fact that we can say something about it. Although I'm a bit confused by the change of events and our neighbors to the south, but I think it's beholding each one of us to make sure we read the label as where things are made. It says made in Mexico or made in Japan or made in Vietnam or anything. That's fine. If it says made in USA, just put it back and tell the people, no, I'm not. Well, I'd go on there for a while, you know. Good. No, no so, supporting of that. No, no, I just, 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 somehow the message has to get across that. And I think that even our friends to the South in, in the States, they, a lot of them recognize that too, but I don't think enough is being done. From my experience, I, those, those folks that are running the United States right now are making it a very dangerous place to live in this planet. I'm not, that worries me because when you look around all your little friends and everything, you think, Jesus, you know, <laughs> they deserve better than this. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is uh, take action for the things that you care about. Yeah. Just, just pay attention. Pay attention. Yeah. And think about it before you buy it or before you do it. That vacation to Disneyland is maybe just not worth as much as maybe a vacation to Kamloops or something, you know. Kamloops is beautiful this time of year. It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Why not? Go to Haida Gwaii. Hey. Go to the Great Bear Rainforest. You know, do something. Yeah. For sure. You want to talk about magical places on totally. Earth. It's not at Disneyland. It's on Haida Gwaii for it's, sure. That place is magic. It's, uh, yeah. So. Okay, Brent. Right. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you, Chris. Well, there you go. And to honor that great interview I just had with Brent, who's so awesome, <laughs> I decided I'd come down to J.M. Abbott Park, which is in the Magic Lake Estates. And it is at a hilltop site. At the bottom of, there's a old school BC Park sign telling the story of J.M. Abbott, who helped develop Magic Lake Estates in the early 60s and died before he saw its completion in 74. It says he died of a heart attack in January 1970. And to honor Brent's story about the salesman saying this could all be yours, I decided to come to the top of the hill that honors the man who helped put this whole thing together and create a lot of real estate, <laughs> places for people to live, whatever he did. He's uh, honored in this park that's covered with Arbutus trees at the top, grounds covered with crispy leaves. It's the middle of the summer and I crunched my way up to the top. It's a steep climb up a pretty steep hill, multiple staircases, railings at points. And then you reach the top and it's a loop. There's a picnic table, a few benches, and I'm just currently sitting on a bench looking out. And on one side is Buck Lake, and on the other side is the ocean. You can see both at the same time, one on either side with forest in the middle. And this is probably one of the most unique parks I've ever been to. And it's just 
covered with Arbutus at the top here. And there's a beautiful peeling Arbutus just to my right. And most of its bark, almost all of it's peeled off. And it's got that second layer that's only half there with this green tinge underneath. It's really amazing. And to have a view of Buck Lake and the ocean and have the feeling that this could all be mine. Because it is. It's all of ours. These places are great. When you get a chance to check them out, check them out. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Until next time.